Hello and welcome to Slant Podcast. My name is Felipe Yarsul Moltedo and I'm a lead dancer with Dana Tyson Burgess Dance Company and a producer for Slant Podcast. Today we have a special episode as our guest is actually Dana Tyson Burgess. We are celebrating the launch of his new memoir published by University of New Mexico Press titled Chin and the Dance of the Butterfly. Dana is a leading American choreographer and cultural figure. He has been referred to as the Poet Laureate of Washington Dance and a National Dance Treasure by Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post writer Sarah Kaufman. Dana's artistic focus explores the idea of cultural confluence and many of his dances have tend to focus on the hyphenated person as well as issues of belonging and societal acceptance. He has served as a cultural ambassador for the United States Department for over two decades, an appointment he uses to promote international cultural dialogue through the global language of dance. Throughout his career, Dana has performed, taught, and choreographed around the world. He founded Dana Tyson Burgess Dance Company in 1992. It is the prominent modern dance company in the Washington DC region, now in its 30th season. He has been honored by the Smithsonian Institution and was a predominant feature in the Smithsonian exhibition, A Korean American Century, as part of the Korean American Centennial Celebration in 2003, as well as Dancing the Dream, the Smithsonian first exhibition on American dance. Three of his portraits are part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian and his family archive resides in the American History Museum. Burgess was named the Smithsonian's first choreographer in residence in 2016. He is the 2021 Selma Jean Cohen Fulbright Lecturer Awardee. Burgess is a DC Mayor appointee serving on the Asian American Pacific Islander Commission. Hey Dana! If it is okay with you, I would like us to have an informal conversation about your book. In your book, Chin and the Dance of the Butterfly, you not only talk about your artistic life, but you also talk about your personal life. So I wanted to start us off by talking about your life growing up. How was it to grow up in Santa Fe as an Asian American? How did that affect you? And how did that start to create your artistic vision? Absolutely. I grew up in Santa Fe in the 1970s and early 80s in a Hispanic neighborhood called Casa Solana, and it's on the west side of town. And here in this neighborhood, I was one of just a couple of Asian American families. One family was Japanese American, and they owned a restaurant. And one family, one of my friends was half Japanese and half Hispanic. And what's Odd about this neighborhood is that it was built directly over the Santa Fe Japanese internment camp. And in that camp, there were over 5,000 Japanese Americans who lived out World War II there. So it always had this odd shadow of something had happened in that neighborhood that nobody talked about. So when I found out about that, you know, that really sort of struck terror in me because I thought, oh my gosh, can I go to prison also just for being Asian American or the way I look? And I think it had a huge impact in me trying to understand where I fit within the community. Because when I grew up there, my friends were all Hispanic or Native American. 
and had a couple of Caucasian friends, but predominantly it was Hispanic and Native American. So it was a very different reality of these multiple cultures trying to communicate and understand one another. And I think that's why I became a dancer and then a choreographer, because I realized at a very young age that the universal language is actually movement, that that's what we all shared. Like we could communicate through movement and through understanding the body. You know, when I read the book, I can see different parts of you. I can see the Asian American, the Chino, the cisgender gay male, the butterfly, and the sensitive and very celebrated choreographer and dancer. And although these three parts of you are not separated, right? They're not in silos. They're all solving life and growing together. But let's imagine for a second that you could separate them. How have they evolved through life and which one is more predominant now? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I think what was odd about my education was that I went to public schools in Santa Fe when there was a bilingual curriculum. So like half the day was taught in Spanish as an immersion and half the day was taught in English. There was just a lot of Spanglish going on. And then I would go home and it was a very Asian household. And then as I grew older, I was enrolled into martial arts classes and had this wonderful um, karate instructor who was a mentor of mine, Makio Nishida. And that school or that dojo was very disciplined, was very traditional, and very much steeped in concept of how you train your body, how you discipline it, and how you parallel that to meditation and just being a good person in general. So during those years, as I started to reach adolescence, there came this other factor, this growing sexuality of trying to understand why I was attracted to other boys, other males. So that became this huge kind of mix of confusion in my life for a very long time, because of course, my neighborhood was very Hispanic and very Catholic and very conservative. And so there were lots of opposing perspectives on how you were supposed to act, what you were supposed to speak, how you were supposed to feel. And I think it took me a very long time to liberate myself really through movement, through the body, to embrace all of those perspectives. And which one is at the forefront at this moment in time? Is it the Chino, the butterfly, or the dancer? I think it really comes and goes. It's really situational for me. Sometimes I feel very Chino, like I see the world from the lens of that, you know, Korean American kid that grew up in this Hispanic neighborhood. And that's very, very strong. And then sometimes I'll shift and I see the world from just a pure movement choreographic perspective. And sometimes when I'm choreographing, I'll really think about what is the relationship of the male body to the female body? But I think that this idea of intersectional realities, of having all these different components that sort of come together 
and have a, a central meeting point, and yet you can celebrate all the diversity of these other parts of yourself is really important to me. And I think about intersectionality more and more these days. It's so interesting that this book is a window to get to know you so much better as the book reveals so many personal details of your life and your upbringing. So then as I read it, I wonder how is it for you to know that there is so many people that know so many personal details about you, Dana? Because no, people know you from your choreography, but not necessarily from your personal life. Well, I think I've always been a bit of an anomaly. You know, I've always had my voice speak through the stage, through choreography. So it was very different for me to put it all out there. And when I was writing the book, to think about how my choreographic aesthetic was created, right? Because essentially, what one choreographs is what one has experienced in life. And so when I started thinking about how did I get here and why do I make dances that look like this, it was in the midst of a COVID shutdown, right? So I would wake up every morning. I like to get up very early sometimes on a consistent level. You know, I'll be up at 3.30 a.m. I'll be up at 3.30 a.m. You know, everybody knows this. And um, so I would write from 3.30 until 6.30 every single day. And it gave me these this time period during this great quieting of the pandemic to just think about how did I grow up, what was important, who was important in my life, and where was I going in this next sort of journey within my life as I'm at middle age? So, you know, the book for me was very therapeutic. And I think it revealed to me a lot of things that I hadn't thought about that had been very impactful on my psyche. Some things were very painful things. Some things were very beautiful things. And to share those took an act of courage, I think, you know, because now it's out there. But I hope that people will resonate with the stories and will find something from their own history and their own past that they feel connects them to the stories in the book. Reading it myself, I think I understand you much more and also your artistic process. I think it's a beautiful account of your growing and evolving, not only as a person, but also as an artist. Oh, thank you. Yeah. In that, you mentioned it briefly in the beginning of our conversation, but I want to dig a little bit more into how we cannot do this alone, right? We cannot go through life and evolve through life by ourselves. And you mentioned in your book multiple people that mark or have marked your career in many different ways, not only artistically, but also as a human being. Could you talk a little bit about how those lessons have impacted you until today and how these people have shaped you not only growing up, but also as a mentor for new generations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there were so many mentors in my life, even from a very early age. You know, my parents were both visual artists. They had a whole friend group of visual artists who were prolific, like Isama Noguchi, who, you know, I had dinner with, you know, many times as a child. There was this whole cavalcade of artists that came through Santa Fe. 
and really interesting artistic conversations that I was privy to as a young child. And those really resonate with me even now as I'm older. But then, you know, as I grow older, my martial arts instructor, Makio Nishida, was an incredible mentor for many years, and we're still good friends. And then the choreographer who I first danced a modern dance for was named Tim Wengard, and he was a soloist for the Graham Company. And he returned to New Mexico to start a company in Albuquerque because he had gotten ill with AIDS. And so this was the AIDS time period where there was a, a huge epidemic that was going on where there wasn't AZT. The prognosis was really death. And I think I learned from him that every single day that you are in the studio is a blessing and that it's important to take moments to laugh and enjoy <laughs> and remember, right? Yeah, remember that everyone's human and that we're all going through life experiences and that somehow at that moment in time, we're together in this process in a studio. And I'll just never forget that. I think about that all the time, just about his generosity of spirit. Mm, that is beautiful, Dana. You mentioned it beautifully in the book, how he's so passionate about his craft. And at the same time, you guys don't know what he's going through. That is such a beautiful analogy to life, how we don't know what is happening in people's lives. And we interact with them every day. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about your dance company. I really enjoy how you express in the book the process in which you pick dancers for the company and how they are a representation or a reconstruction of your family, of your upbringing. So could you talk about how does that come to be? How do you recreate community or recreate your community and your family with the dancers that you have in the company? How do you create your family? With the dance company. Yeah, you know, I think that it was so subconscious for many, many years, because being a choreographer and how you cast and what dancers you choose, you know, it's very subjective. But that subjectivity is formed by a personal aesthetic, which has been created by every life experience one has had. So it's interesting to me, you know, over all these 30 years now that I often think, oh my goodness, you know, it's like that long lost sister that I, you know, never had because I, you know, have one brother, but I always thought, what would it be like to have a sister? You know, there's always, <laughs> there's always that, that dancer who I think, oh my gosh, she could be my sister. You know, she's like half Korean and <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and then growing up in Hispanic neighborhood, there's always a Latin element, right? And there are always individuals that somehow remind me of my father or a cousin or somebody that I knew when I was younger. And somehow this family construct just continues, right? It's like even when a dancer retires, another dancer replaces. And that's fascinating too, to think that this sort of whole family of archetypes, right, <laughs> that's been built, like continues on generation after generation as well. But it seems like that's so important to my creative process. And it's also so important for the repertoire that was made like 25 years ago, for instance, to also continue to have a life. Or 30 years. 
because the company is celebrating 30 years of existence right now, which is a huge accomplishment to you, Dana, and also to all of the people that works with you in the company, right? And during these 30 years, the company has been blessed with the opportunity to tour not only nationally, but internationally. And you mentioned in the book a couple of tours that have been especially meaningful to you because they have either bring something that shape company pieces or they are the seed for new company pieces or they have changed the way that you see the world. So could you talk a little bit about how these tours or others have been meaningful to you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned this in the book that when I was a child, I collected postcards of photos of monuments and places all over the world. And I had this little collection that I kept on a bookshelf. And as I grow older, I realize that, you know, I've gotten to all of those places on tour. And I, and I think, I wonder if, is that a premonition as a child or is that placing it into action? And I still, I still consider and wonder about that. I think that, you know, even though I write about Peru and Pakistan and Korea, in the book, tours like Cambodia, for instance, were very formative as well to be able to collaborate with culturally specific dancers and to also see how ingrained the language of movement and the performing arts are within a culture that dates back so far in time. Whereas in America, you know, we're a very young country, right? And although we celebrate Native American dances that go back, you know, tens of thousands of years, the actual daily existence and daily just seeing dance, feeling dance that is based within a living tradition isn't something that we see as much in the United States. And also to think about the relationship of the musician to the dancer, which is a slightly different kind of musicality also. I think is interesting. But then there are those tours that are meaningful in other ways as well. For instance, being in Pakistan and witnessing how it's life-threatening to dance in certain parts of the world. And that makes me think about the freedom that we have here in the United States. And then being in Jordan on another tour up on the border of Syria, thinking about a refugee crisis that's happening just a mile away. And what does it mean to be searching for a place to call home? What is the universality of that? So I think every tour profoundly affects me in terms of the questions that it brings up. Hmm. Yeah, that is so interesting, Dana, because those questions make the pieces so much more human somehow because they are about human stories that transcend borders right in that area of making dances the company makes two or three major dance pieces a year and they are all very different right in topic or in production but yet you in the book made a beautiful and detailed account of the process into making Picasso dances. So then I wonder, why that piece? Why did you chose that piece amongst many others that you have made in these 30 years? And you're, of course, in the original cast of Picasso dances, <laughs> well, which is great, you know. Just talk more about that later. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
you know, it was this unique opportunity that the Krieger Museum has this amazing collection of Picassos. And when I spoke to the director, the ability to create in such a close proximity to the original Picassos actually was quite thrilling. And so that really drew me in. And I think that it was just a very clear representation of how a great work of visual art can instill a new sense of creativity and can actually dance off of the canvas. And I've always thought of the stage as a moving canvas, the dancers as brushstrokes, right? And I think that that's because I grew up in the midst of seeing my parents as visual artists, their creative processes. So I feel very at home around the visual arts, and I feel very inspired by that at the same time. Yeah, that is so interesting because you describe throughout the book the journey that the company has had through time, right? Starting with you by yourself into the group that is today, passing by different versions of the company and how your company has had to evolve and grow, not only in the production, but also the presentation of pieces, right? So I wanted to ask you, what do you see in the horizon for the dance company? Well, I can really see that the dance company is on a wonderful upward trajectory of larger and more choreographic opportunities, you know, and performance opportunities. The confluence of visual arts and dance seems to be something that is a staple within the repertoire. And also what is so important, I think, to the repertoire is the ability for the work to tell stories that are universal and often stories that are underrepresented within the canon of American history. So I think that we'll continue to do works that are inspired by social justice icons, works that are inspired by visual artists, by historic moments in time which shift societal consciousness. And all three of those things, I think, are what's on the horizon to continue. And also, what is next for you? What is next for Dana? Mm. Well, you know, we're working on a project, as you know, now that is based on the Transcendental Painting Group, which was a group of painters that went to Towson, New Mexico in the 1930s and 40s. So that piece we're doing currently, um, it has this amazing piano score that we're working with. And of course, costumes by my old high school friend, Patricia Michaels, who is from Taos Pueblo. And that piece is going to premiere at the University of New Mexico Art Museum. Then it'll be at the National Portrait Gallery. Then it'll start to tour. And it'll be at Towson University. It'll be at the Kennedy Center later this year as well. So there's a lot going on. And in the midst of all this, we'll be working on a new piece for the Krieger Museum based on these beautiful Miro paintings. And next year, we have an exciting trilogy that we're putting together that'll premiere in the late spring, which is based on Asian American perspectives throughout time. Wow, that's a very exciting season coming up for you and the company, Dana. So tell us, where can we buy the book? The book is published by University of New Mexico Press, and it's available through University of New Mexico Press. And it's also on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble um, here in Washington. It's at Politics and Prose. So it's really um, 
wherever fine books are sold, you can find it. And I understand you also have a second book. Can you talk about it? Sure. It's um, entitled Milestones in Dance History, and it's actually by the publisher Rutledge. And I edited the book, brought the authors together, and also am a contributor. But it's a look at how do we reconsider the history of dance from lots of different perspectives, right? Like, so it's not a traditional dance history book, but it really breaks down how in the past we've thought about it from one-sided perspective. So in this book, we have wonderful authors who write about indigenous histories of dance, about the Silk Roads, about the African-American diaspora in dance. So it's really looking at it three-dimensionally from a global perspective, which is much more informed by the cultural conversations that we're engaged with today. That's great, Dana. And mm -hmm. I'm in the cover of that book, so <laughs> I really like it. Uh-huh. I really enjoy this question that you do in the podcast to your guests. And that is, what would you tell a younger choreographer or a younger dancer to make it in the field? What do they need to pay attention to? I would tell a young dancer um, or choreographer that what they have to do is work on their craft and be excellent at that. And then they need to understand what their personal aesthetic is and to not try and follow or emulate someone else's aesthetic, but to really dig deeply into finding the beauty of their own individuality. Because really, we only remember choreographers that have a unique aesthetic. We don't remember choreographers whose work is derivative of another choreographer. And yet to find that individuality is a journey within that's um, very important. Thank you, Dana. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on the other side of things, me asking the questions, that is. And of course, thank you for being so open and vulnerable in your answers. Oh, thank you, Felipe. Like, this was such an honor. I so enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Dana. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in today. Please rate the podcast on your listening platform and tell your friends. Feel free to contact me at slantpodcast.com. It's always great to hear from you, our listeners. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Dana Tasso and Burgess Dance Company, the Cherry Blossom Giving Circle, and the Daddy Liam Gunawan Hickory Legacy Fund. 